Thank you. Good morning, Covenant Life. It's such a joy to be with you. Uh, I'm Ronnie Rents. I'm a former member and pastor here. And uh, last year in this very room, eight families, uh, many of you placed your hands on us. You prayed for us right here in this very room. And we, we covenanted together as a church for the first time. And we were sent out by this body to start a new work in St. Petersburg, Florida. And so I, it is just a honor and a joy to, to reflect on all that has happened this past year, on how this church has loved us and, uh, and sent us out to, to be a gospel outpost in St. Pete. And as um, Huff said earlier, Justin's over preaching at Covenant Hope to a much smaller crowd, and I have the blessing and honor of being here with you. When Justin asked me to preach, I was so relieved to come help out. Because I'd heard that the, the current sermon series y'all were going through was kind of a, a dreary, long, wandering in the wilderness. And um, yeah, so I'm just, I'm thankful to bring just some living waters of the New Testament to you today. And so I, I love this church. We're, we're so blessed by your prayers, by your encouragement, your support. And if I haven't met you yet, I would love to meet you after the service. A famous psychiatrist named Robert Coles, as he was teaching his graduate class at Harvard, he told this story to his class about a fellow psychiatrist, a colleague of his, who approached him one day and his colleague was in despair. He's in despair about one of his patients. The colleague said, I've been doing therapy with a man for 15 years. He is angry He's as angry and as self-centered and as mean as he was the first day he walked into my office. The only difference now is that he knows why he is angry and why he is mean. The psychiatrist had provided his client with thorough insight about his childhood and how some emotional wounding had affected his current dysfunction, but the man still hadn't changed. And so after telling this story, the professor asked his class for the discussion that day. Can we, can we conclude that what this man needed wasn't just information, but transformation? And he asked his students, is this kind of transformation even possible for human beings? We may not be Harvard grads, but to these questions asked in this class discussion, every Christian can wholeheartedly answer, yes, what we need is not just information, but transformation. This is the testimony of every true Christian life. We have been transformed. So we can boldly and joyfully answer, yes, transformation is possible, but only through the power and blood-bought redemption found in Jesus Christ. Everywhere Jesus went, we see transformation happen. Today we're going to be looking at three different accounts of transformation in the ministry of Jesus Every life he touches, we see true, lasting change. We see light coming out of darkness. We see love where there had only been hate. Spiritual eyes are open. Those held captive to their sin, they are freed. 
He defies our conventions. He turns the world upside down. And the ripple effects of his ministry were nothing but transformation, even to this day. And all who truly follow him have been transformed. They've been brought from death to life. They're no longer content to live for their sin and themselves. But Jesus changes our desires. He transforms our heart to live for his glory. Let's pray this morning that we would live this transformed life in him. Let's pray. God, we need you. As we see Jesus' ministry on earth, Lord, I pray that we would rightly comprehend and understand all that we have in Christ. God, that our lips would, could not help but speak of the mercies and the grandness and the beauty of Christ. And Lord, it would not just be something we hear, but it would be something that goes deep down, something that changes the way we live, changes our intentionality, changes who we are, fundamental, our fundamental being, Lord, transform us. Help us to know what the transformed life is in you. In your name we pray, amen. The three different accounts of transformation in the ministry of Jesus that we're going to be looking at today, we'll see the first is that Jesus transforms our idea of authority. And we'll see this in verses 17 through 26. Secondly, we'll see that Jesus transforms the way that we love in verses 27 through 32. And then lastly, Jesus transforms our traditions in verses 33 through 39. Jesus has been teaching going from synagogue to synagogue. At the start of chapter five, just previously, he performed miracles of healing. He's called his first disciples to follow him. He's gained so much notoriety during this time that they're there to see him. And we read in verse 17, Pharisees, teachers of the law, they were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. Jesus had drawn so much attention that all the religious leaders had traveled from all around to investigate him, to see what he's about. Those, these would be people well-versed in the Old Testament. And among them, these teachers were the Pharisees, a very influential group, which we'll come to find out they're one of the chief antagonists of Jesus. Pharisee meant separated or, or holy one, separated one. And these were experts on the scriptures, and they kept the commandments so diligently, and they didn't have anything to do with people who did not keep the commandments. Pharisees were not only zealous law keepers, but in an effort to ensure that these laws were kept, they added to them man-made commandments. And with all these added rules and stipulation, the authority had moved from the word of God, the law of God, and it had moved to their own example They had moved to the Pharisees' teaching and their rules. So they're there to see what this Jesus guy is doing. And we see that Jesus is there, and he's teaching, and he's full of the Holy Spirit, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Our scene then cuts to a group of men that were carrying a bed with a man resting on it who was paralyzed. They're seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But the crowds around Jesus, they're so thick There's no way that they're getting in. Jesus was the VIP at this event. Every ticket was sold. Every seat was full. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, 
they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. Houses at this time typically had exterior staircases that led to a flat roof. And these roofs were where a lot of household activities would take place. It'd be a gathering place. You can go up there and do your laundry, hang out. And so these men carrying their friend who was paralyzed, they decide, let's carry him up on the roof. Sounds like a Micah Lewis idea or something. And let's disassemble the roof and let's make a hole big enough to lower him down into it. Just think of the great lengths that these men went to for their friends. What care and love had to be shown by these men to care for their friend. Just to bring him to Jesus. They carried him on a stretcher. They climbed a ladder and stairs. They disassembled the roof. These, these are risks they are taking here. Can you imagine the homeowner's reaction? Just imagine right now if a man with a stretcher was being lowered down from the roof in our midst. It would have been so easy for these friends to say, oh man, there's no way we're getting in today. Let's try another day. Let's turn back. But they had such an urgency and a desperation about them to help their friend. How desperate are we to bring others to Jesus? Think about those around you that don't know Christ and they stand under the wrath of God with no provision for their sins. How desperate are you to bring them to Jesus? Love for our neighbor and a zeal for God should compel us to get others to Christ even at great cost to ourselves. We should have an urgency in our hearts, even willing to lose social credibility, even willing to risk how others might think of us, willing to have conversations outside our comfort zone, even if it costs us, even if we have to tear apart a roof. Love for God and a love for our neighbors should compel us to take earthly risk for eternal consequences. Pastor Charles Spurgeon brings us home. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. These faithful friends. Don't you just love their simplicity? I don't think they had everything figured out. I don't think they woke up that morning and said, man, we're going to have to push through a mosh pit crowd and do some property damage. All they knew was that they had to get their friend to Jesus. What steps of love do we need to take to bring others to Christ? What sacrificial actions are you called to so that others may know where healing from all their wounds may be found? We may be the only glimpse of Jesus that someone sees. Next, let's look at Jesus' response. Jesus sees them coming down from the ceiling in verse 20. When he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. What a reply from Jesus. Getting this man took to this point. It took a great deal of faith on their part. And Jesus sees their faith at work. And he declares the paralyzed man's sin forgiven. 
Faith is an internal trust seen in our actions. Each of you is trusting that the pew you're sitting in won't fall apart. We're trusting that our cars will get us from point A to point B. Otherwise, we wouldn't get in them and crank them up. We're trusting that our children in CLK are safe and that church members aren't juggling babies up there. If, if they were, we would not, if we didn't trust them, they wouldn't be up there. I wonder as God looks at our lives, does he see your faith? Does he tangibly see it? What is, what is it that you could point to in your life that clearly illustrates you are walking in faith? Are you living in a way that a non-Christian onlooker might say, wow, that doesn't quite make sense. Why would they do that? That doesn't seem sensible. Or are your life and actions showing your lack of faith and dependency on yourself? Just like these men bringing their friend before Jesus our heart level trust is illustrated in sacrificial actions that can be seen. Jesus sees their faith in action. It's at the statement of Jesus that the trouble and the controversy begins. The ears of the scribes, the teachers, and Pharisees, their ears perk up at these words of Christ. And their initial thought is blasphemy. Verse 21, and the scribes and the Pharisees begin to question saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? A blasphemy is an act that profanes the sacred. It's when someone takes something holy and corrupts it, a lie about God. These teachers are taken aback that Jesus is claiming the power to forgive sins, which is something that only God can claim. Blasphemy was punishable by death. And in their response, we see Jesus' path to the cross. We see where it's headed because these were the same charges that would one day be leveled against him at his execution. These teachers, they have a theological concern then they're actually correct about their concern. <laughs> Only God can forgive sins. But in all their different <laughs> law-keeping, all their diligent law-keeping, these, these holy men of God are missing God in the flesh before them. Jesus perceives what they are thinking. He knows that they are plotting in their hearts. And he answers them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say, rise and walk. Jesus is not speaking about the difficulty of speaking words here. He is, he's pointing out that saying your sins are forgiven is easier to say because you can't prove it. It cannot be disproven. But to tell someone who was paralyzed to rise and walk, it would be plainly evident if what you were saying is true or not. So Jesus, full of the power of the Holy Spirit, he decides to visibly demonstrate he is God, who is the only one capable of forgiving sin. And to verify this claim, to back his words up, he says to them, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. 
And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. Can you imagine witnessing that? Jesus emphatically tells the man to rise and immediately, as the word leaves Jesus' mouth, this man rises up, completely healed, picks up his mat, goes home praising God. Amen. What power. Now, onlookers skeptically are watching. Jesus wanted them to know that he has the power to forgive sins, that he is on par with God himself. And this man, this paralyzed man, he did not come for the forgiveness of sins. That was not his hope. He came to be physically healed. But just like all people everywhere, humanity's greatest need is our forgiveness of sins, to be forgiven of our sins. That is our greatest need. Just like that psychologist who saw the same patient who labored with them for 15 years with no change, except gaining a better understanding of why he is such a bad dude. That man thought his greatest need was physical. But Jesus not only heals the physical, but he looks to our deeper to heal the spiritual sickness, our spiritual depravity as well. And what Jesus gives all who turn from their sins all who place their faith in him is forgiveness of their sins before a holy God. All of us in our natural state, we stand guilty under his wrath, worthy of an eternity in hell for our sins against our eternal maker. We've sinned against the one who gave us everything. Our, for our greatest need, Jesus would go to the cross he would die in our place. His grace is so amazing. For all those who would turn from their sins and trust in him, he heals us wholly and completely, taking on himself the weight of our sin and making us right with God. And we are clothed in his righteousness, living in his power over sin and death. That is transformation. That is the transformed life that every Christian can claim. Something that we might miss or skip over in this miraculous event is that Jesus, oh, mic difficulty, um, is that Jesus refers to himself in verse 24 as the son of man. This is one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself. We're going to see in the book of Luke, he refers to himself as the son of man 25 times. And the Son of Man, it's an important title. It was something that was prophesied of by Daniel hundreds of years prior to this time. We read in Daniel 7, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, who we believe is referring to the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus not only has the power, the transformative authority to forgive sins, 
Not only the power to heal the paralyzed, not only to the power to perceive the sinful hearts of the Pharisees, he claims this epic title of the Son of Man who will have everlasting dominion. How could we ever regard Jesus as a mere moral teacher? We must accept or reject him as God. He can be a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. But the one thing he cannot be is just a guy. The crowds that saw this, they responded like everyone who has seen God transform a life. Amazement seized them all. And they glorified God. And they were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. This amazement and praise of the crowds it was general. It was vague. The crowds were amazed, but, but kind of like crowds of churchgoers that go and applaud the sermon and say it was a great sermon without applying it to their own hearts. They did not worship Jesus. They did not say, how can my sins be forgiven? But they left knowing that they had seen something extraordinary. Just as Jesus did then, he does now. He transforms our idea of authority. He rules over sin, over sickness, and life and death. Next, we're going to see that Jesus transforms the way that we love. I want to take a moment to show us some of the meaning that may not always be apparent in this beautiful gospel of Luke. We see that the Bible is not just an ordinary book. Luke so far is mirroring the movement of the story of the first six books of the Bible. Luke has moved from Jesus' baptism in chapter 3. Jesus overcame temptation in the wilderness in chapter 4. Jesus has come into the land teaching and preaching. And we've seen him start calling his first disciples in chapter 6. We see him call the 12. With this in mind, let's, let's take a glimpse into Israel. We see the exodus through the baptismal waters of the Red Sea. We see the temptation in the wilderness for 40 years. We see them coming into the land. They were to be preaching and teaching. They were to be distinct from all the other peoples, not conforming to those around them. We see the establishment of the 12 tribes. It's no coincidence that Jesus would call 12 disciples. Israel failed to uphold the covenant. They failed to live for God. They grumbled. They gave into temptation. They did not stay set apart. And God gave them everything they needed and more. And they forsook him. This Old Testament was meant to show us our need of a Savior. In every way, Jesus excels. In every way, he is sufficient. He is the greater Adam. He is the greater Israel. He brings a better covenant, a lasting covenant. He's ushering in a new kingdom. And what kind of followers does he start his kingdom with? He started with some fishermen, not the high priests, not the magistrates, not the PhDs or the CEOs. Next, he would call a tax collector. If you know anything about tax collectors in Bible times, they're one of the most despised 
groups of people. Nobody likes paying taxes to begin with. I thought they'd get an amen. <laughs> but Jewish tax collectors, they were seen as betrayers of their own people. They're enforcing taxes for an oppressive Roman government. All the while, they skimmed off the top for themselves. And Jesus goes out, and he sees a tax collector named Levi, who we may better know as Matthew. Many times, people both had a Hebrew Aramaic name and a Greek and Latin name. And Jesus says, follow me. And look at Levi's response in verse 28. In leaving everything, he rose and followed him. In this short verse, we see what it is to be a Christian. He left everything and followed him. He's completely trusting him with his life and with his future. Levi, he was not just responding to a random stranger. He knew that this man possessed authority. But Levi packs up his ledger. He stopped going through his account books. He folds up his table and he says, yes, Lord, I am going with you. This is what we signed up for when we trusted Christ, to go wherever he would call us, wherever he leads us. Not to go wherever we are comfortable or on our own terms, but to surrender all and to follow him. Our lives are a blank check for God to use however he sees fit. And while a natural response may be to be scared of what he could call us to, a response we are able to have in the strength and the power with the Spirit's help is a joy to what he is calling to, that that will always be what's best for us, that that will always be what brings him most glory. What's great about following Jesus is that following him is not something that ever deprives us. In fact, it gives us life-sustaining joy. It's so good. So immediately after following Jesus, giving up what he was doing and following right after Jesus, what does Levi do? We see in verse 29, he throws a party and invites all of his friends to meet Jesus. But how does the religious establishment, how do the Pharisees respond to this feast of Levi? They grumble, verse 30. I really do believe that Pharisees, both back then and modern-day Pharisees, they are skeptical of joy. There should be no people more joyful than those that have been shown amazing grace. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They don't get it. They don't understand. The Pharisees, they believed in salvation by segregation. We need to be separate. We can't be near the dirty people. We can't be near the outcasts. We can't be near the sinners. We need to keep a safe distance from such people. And Jesus answered them something I'm sure Luke as a physician would delight to hear. Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Amen. Jesus tells him, you don't even know why I'm here. 
I've come to seek and save the lost. I'm here for the tax collectors, for the prostitutes, for the people of the land, the dirty people. They are my people. I'm going to shed my blood for these people that you see as your enemies. I didn't come to save those who are righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. It's important that I clarify, he, righteous here is not righteous in a true sense. He's not condemning those that are living holy lives, obedient to all of Jesus' teaching. He's referring to those that are already good in their own eyes. He's referring to those that, that don't need a Savior. They're good enough. Isn't it interesting just how often the church can struggle in knowing how to engage sinners? Of course, Christians should have a great concern for holiness. Of course, Christians should care greatly about their witness. But Jesus' way of living here challenges our notions of holiness. It transforms the way we love. We can't think of holiness only as separation, or we wind up isolating ourselves from the very people we have been called to reach. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, I write to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Sometimes our instinct is upside down in the church. Sometimes we can be afraid to engage a lost world of sinners outside while being complacent about unrepentant sin inside the church. It should be the opposite. Man, starting a, a new church in St. Pete, we've thought so much about how to reach the city that God has placed us in, how to be faithful here. And, and for so many, not just in St. Pete, but everywhere, the question is not what church should I go to, but why should I even begin to go to church? Why would I bother with church? There's some coffee shop owners who moved to St. Pete specifically to get away from church culture. Many don't want anything to do with the gospel and the God of the Bible. We'd just be messing up their Sunday fun. And there's this prominent LGBTQ plus population in, in St. Pete. There's a church right down the street in St. Pete that I drive by often and every month They'll have a new saying on their sign that, that will make you feel things, not good things. One month that was especially memorable was Jesus is God in drag. I drive by these signs. I pray, God, what would you have me do here? Do I run away in revulsion? Do I take up righteous anger graffiti? Maybe I should reach out to that pastor and befriend him. 
And just this thought, these thoughts of love just overwhelm me. What, what, if that, what if that pastor came to Christ? Can you imagine what that might do to a congregation? How that might just change an entire church? What if they went from preaching that hope is found in fulfilling every one of our desires? to preaching that hope is found in the beauty and majesty of King Jesus and his kingdom, that in him we can take up our cross, die to ourselves, and be transformed by the grace of his gospel. How will we reach the farthest from God in our eyes? I think the same way we reach anybody, brothers and sisters, Stepping out in love, caring enough to form a relationship, pointing them to the hope we possess in Christ, telling them to turn from their sins, not clapping back in a culture war or or leaving a drive-by Facebook comment. I'm helped when I think about the next great theologian might be passed out drunk in a ditch somewhere. God delights to transform lives. That's what brings him glory. So how will we reach sinners in need of grace if faithful Christians are not willing to step out in love and to show them Christ? And what I love about Jesus is he is perfectly, he toes the line perfectly of being in the world but not of the world as we are called to be. And this Jesus never condones or affirms what is sinful. Jesus never participates in sin. Why is he here? In fact, it's not to take part in sinfulness, but to call sinners to repentance. Jesus attends Levi's party with the spiritual well-being of others in mind. He eats with tax collectors and sinners. He, He loves them. He extends grace to them. But at the same time, he calls them to repentance. He loves them enough to do that. So we are not as strong as our Savior. And we do need safeguards and wisdom as we seek to love those in the world. We're to give no room for the devil or to make any provision for the flesh. But we can keep a redemptive purpose or goal in mind as we go into the world. We might need to consider who sits around our dinner table. I firmly believe that if Jesus had a house and a table at the time, it would be slam full, both of sinners who have found grace, fellowshipping with other brothers and sisters, and sinners who are sick sinners who are need grace. The crazy thing is that in this scene, that night at the banquet, no one needed repentance more than the scribes and the Pharisees. Nobody needs a physician more than somebody who is fatally ill but doesn't know it. The good news is that if you are here this morning and you see your inability to be righteous, you're beat up by your failings time and time again, you've searched out what this world has to offer and it's come up lacking. Maybe you've been mired in guilt. You've found that you're broken. You've found that you're in need of grace. Jesus came for you. He's waiting to give all who leave their sin, all who would follow him, every everlasting grace. 
But if you don't think you need Jesus, if you're good with God, if you're all good just the way you are, he did not come for you. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is what we do with our sin. Faithful Christians, they don't dismiss their sin as nothing. They're not flippant about it. It's a big deal. Faithful Christians don't try to pay off their debt of their sin by doing deeds to try to earn right standing before God. No, faithful Christians run to Jesus. We turn from our sins. We leave it all behind like Levi. And we cling to him, trusting in his perfect life, death, and resurrection. And if you're here this morning and you have a need for grace, you want to know the joy of following Christ, it would be the delight of any member here to talk to you about how you can be transformed by the grace of Jesus. It'd be my delight to talk to you after the service. Jesus transforms the way we love. And lastly, we'll see Jesus transforms our tradition. Verses 33 through 39. The Pharisees, they're still perplexed. They are not enjoying the dinner party. They're still having a hard time with this Jesus guy. Like many people today, they don't truly understand who he is and what he has come for. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. The first step in becoming a self-righteous religious Pharisee is using our own personal religious example as a requirement for everyone else to obey. The Pharisees, they're upset about the disciples not fasting. They're upset about the disciples not following their own tradition, their man-made laws. If we think about fasting, it's done as an act of self-discipline. It's done as something to be more be closer to be more reliant upon God in the absence of food you hunger more for God and Jesus is saying I am the bridegroom this is an old-timey way of saying I am the groom and I will be taken away from you and those are the days for your fasting you fast to be closer to God yet God is with you and you're concerned about fasting this is like being at a live concert and thinking others in the crowd are not true fans of the band because unlike you, they are not watching videos of the band playing on their phone. You don't need the videos. The real thing is right in front of you. Now is the time for the wedding feast. The bridegroom has come for his bride. He says, you can fast when I'm gone. The whole purpose of fasting is to be close to me and I am here. They're so eager to keep the rules. They, they don't see the very one that the rules were pointing to all along. God's in front of them, taking part in joyful festivities, and they're concerned about keeping their rules. It should fill us with joy that this bridegroom will one day come back for his people, his perfect, spotless bride, the church all of his people. And lastly, Jesus leaves them with three parables, all contrasting the old and the new. 
the Pharisees, as they thought about the law, it, it was messed up by the new coming of his kingdom. One, one of the, one of the um, parable was about a piece of a new garment being sewn into an old garment. One of new wine being put into an old wineskin. These are animal skin containers in which wine was placed. And lastly, of new wine being put into new wineskins. In these parables, Jesus was saying, you can't take the kingdom of God that I'm ushering in and just put it on top of the Pharisees' tradition. It won't fit. Something new is happening here. There's a new covenant. Yes, it's built on the old, but it couldn't just be put on top of the old traditions. Like, like a seed becoming a flower, like a caterpillar becoming a butterfly, the old would need to be transformed. If you tried to patch the old garment with a new garment, it'll be ruined. If you try to put new wine into old wineskins, the old ones, they would have been stretched in the fermenting process. They would have been brittle and break, and you ruin the wineskin along with the wine. You're to put new wine into wineskins. And those who have already have a taste for the old, they aren't going to give it up for the new. If you force Jesus onto the old covenant, it won't work. Something new, something transformational is happening here. I think in the same ways, brothers and sisters, we cannot cling to our own ideas of Jesus, our own ideas of Christianity, who we think he is and how we think we should live. When confronted with the real, historical, biblical Jesus, we cannot fit him on top of our own preferences and our own desires. Instead, he transforms our desires to live for his glory. Jesus sets the agenda for our life. He defines our traditions. He defines how we spend our days. Beloved, as we close, I want to ask you to think on this question. Am I living the transformed life? It blows my mind that the Pharisees could not see God in the flesh right in front of them, sitting a few seats down. All authority was his. He's full of love, perfect love, perfect compassion, perfect holiness. And yet they're upset by his dinner guests. They're upset he's breaking their traditions. As we think about our lives in the church today, we may have a love for healthy churches. We may attend a faithful gospel preaching church. But we need to examine ourselves and ask, how am I contributing to that health? Am I beholding Jesus in my life? Am I helping others to behold Jesus? Or am I more concerned about following my own rules and policing other people with my preferences? Jesus, in perfect obedience to the Father, went willingly to the cross. He rose from the grave for his people to live lives like no other. Lives freed from sin. Lives freed from the never-ending burden of having to achieve our own righteousness to be right with God. In him we possess hearts that are able to have joy in the midst of sorrow. We can always trust. We can always be hopeful in his perfect provision for us. 
He transforms our hearts to see him as the ultimate authority over all of our life. He transforms the way we love others because of the way that he loves us. And he transforms our traditions. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. Jesus transforms everything. Brothers and sisters, let's live transformed lives by his grace and for his glory. Let's pray. God, in our natural mind, we fail to behold you for all that you are. How often we think how big our problems are. How often we think of our own self-sufficiency instead of being wooed, being in awe of your grandeur, God. Help every one of us to seize what we have in you. Help us to live a transformed life. And God, may we see the beauty and joy we get to proclaim your good news so that others might live transformed as well. In your name we pray, amen.